Hebrews chapter 6. We're resuming our look at the letter to the Hebrews. Just a reminder, Hebrews was written, uh, we don't know the author, it was written to primarily Jewish believers in the first century who under persecution, under struggle, under difficulty, were considering and in danger of abandoning their faith in Christ and going back to what was familiar, what was comfortable, what was less dangerous. The author of Hebrews writes to warn them not to do so and to lay forth a vision of their Savior Jesus Christ as far greater than anything else that they could look to. We took a break during the Advent season, and we now resume our study of Hebrews, which we'll finish up sometime in the end of May, if you want to pace yourself. As we read through this passage, you may understand why I'm glad I only have to preach on it once and not two services. But let us hear now the word of the Lord from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 12. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is the word of the Lord. New Year's Day, for many people, a time to examine, to assess, to reorient your path, maybe for some to make resolutions of how this coming year will be different, we look back at the past year, we see where we're at now, and we look ahead to where we want to be, and we make changes if necessary. Now, God's word to his people sometimes come to us in much the same way as a warning. As we look back on where we've been, it warns us to maybe turn away from certain paths, telling us what would happen if we follow that road, not because we're on that road, but so that we don't leave the path that we're already on. I love every now and then to, do, uh, to look at internet articles about funny signs. And there's one funny sign I've seen that is in a snow skiing area. And the sign basically is a skull and crossbones and says, if you go down this path, you will die. Turn around now. In some ways, Hebrews and God's word in general gives us warnings that are saying exactly that. You're not on that path right now, but be warned that if you go that way, it will not end well for you. When we read warnings in that way, they should not be a terror or a threat to us. They are not even harsh words. They are instead loving words of a loving God who wants to protect us from harm. So as we look at these verses, let us be careful not to be distracted by the strong and even extreme language that it gives us sometimes and end up reading what it does not say. 
these verses, despite how they might appear at first and how they are read by some of our brothers and sisters in the Lord, they are not a warning that those who are truly saved, those who are children of God, may somehow fall out of the Father's hand, tear themselves away from the Father's embrace, and lose their salvation. It is not a warning that truly saved children of God can be forever lost and cut off from repentance with no way home. The Bible is clear on that in other places. The prodigal son may return and the father waits eagerly for him. No, these verses are a promise that God blesses his people as they faithfully respond to his grace. And it's a call to us to ensure that we continue to respond to that grace in a way that leads to blessing. So just two points this morning. It is dangerous to reject God's grace. And it is blessed to continue in God's grace. Let's jump right into the challenging set of verses at the beginning as we see that it's dangerous to reject God's grace. Verses 4 through 6 say, It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance. Let us ensure that we are understanding those words rightly because a lot of ink has been spilled and a lot of arguments have been made about what this means. First of all, who are we talking about? Who are these people that the author has in view in verses 4 through 5? Those who've once been enlightened. Those who have tasted the heavenly gift. Those who have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. That can sound like those who are truly saved, but not for the author of Hebrews. We saw a number of months back when we were in chapter 3, verse 14, he wrote, We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. It's not merely tasting the word of God, not merely experiencing the beauty of the covenant community. It's persevering in that until the end that distinguishes the true from the false believer. This is a disturbing theme in Scripture that there are those who seem to follow Christ, who experience the blessings of being among God's people, who say the right words and do the right things, but they do not persevere until the end. Think of Judas, who was condemned for betraying Jesus. But earlier in the Gospels, we see that he is among the twelve. He is sent out in the power of the Holy Spirit and is among the twelve as they cast out demons, as they preach the kingdom of God, as they return rejoicing in the mighty works that have been done in God's name. The Holy Spirit works through whomever he wills. And he can even use in ministry people who are not God's children. So these verses are not describing people who are securely saved, who are definitely children of God. They are those who are among the people of God, who sing the songs, who say the things. And yet at some point they leave that path. They pull themselves away and never return. They have fallen away, these verses say. That doesn't mean that they've messed up. It doesn't mean that they've stumbled along the way and had a difficult time. 
They've had a moment of weakness, a season in their life of doubt or immaturity. No, that's something different. Because as we see in verse 6, he says it's impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and are holding Him up to contempt. That's who he's talking about. When the author of Hebrews talks about these people who fall away, it means people who have made a choice to reject Jesus. They have made a choice to abandon their faith in Christ and sought partnership with those who rejoice in the crucifixion, who rejoice in the shame of Jesus, who are opposed to Him. This is what Paul is saying when he quotes what was probably a very early Christian hymn in 2 Timothy 2. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. But if we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. That word faithless doesn't mean that we have no faith, we're agnostic or atheistic. It's not speaking of unbelief. That word faithless in context means not living up to our obligation. Not being all that we should be, all that we committed to be. Failing, sinning, messing up. If we are faithless, He remains faithful to us. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. But if we deny Him, if we reject Him, if we cut ourselves off from Him, we cannot receive grace if we reject the God of grace. It is impossible to bring someone to repentance if they have built a wall between themselves and the only source of repentance and restoration, which is Jesus Christ. As long as they cut themselves off from Jesus, then there is no path of repentance for them to walk. Because Jesus is the only way to God, those who reject Jesus have no way to be with God. I was reminded of a time when overseas I was uh, among the Yellow Mountains of China, one of the most beautiful and terrifying places to visit. Uh, I mean, if you just picture when the fog rolls in, you just see the, the tops of these giant rock spires and narrow um, bridges constructed by the lowest bidder going from mountaintop to mountaintop. <laughs> and narrow staircases that did not have the American body shape in mind as you're trying to walk up the sides of the mountains. And I, I remember being there with a group once and one of the members of our group uh, having crossed over a specific bridge into one of the areas. And it's, it's a labyrinth. It's a maze of bridges and mountains and staircases and up and down. And it's insane. I remember one of the members of our group having crossed over this narrow bridge later on wanting to come back and go back down the mountains to safety and security and home so I'm not going over that bridge again. I, I can't do it. I was, I was terrified. I can't do it. I, I absolutely will not go across that bridge. I'm going to find another way down. And I remember looking at the map and seeing how things laid out and recognizing that everything on the side of the bridge that we stood on all came back to this bridge. There was no way down but by that bridge and where it led. And as my friend sought every other path and every other possibility, they found it coming back here again. And so long as he said, nope, I will not go across that bridge, he had no way home. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. It's impossible to talk about repentance if you, if you have ruled out the only way of repentance. If you have denied Jesus and said, any way but that way, 
I'll take animal sacrifice. I'll take huge financial gifts. I'll take whatever it is I have to do to get back to God, except this one way. If you have denied God's only way of repentance, there is no other way back. It is impossible. And yet, in the midst of this, there is hope, which I want you to hear because we're talking about people here. We are talking about people that we know and people we love and people we care about. And to say it's impossible for them to come back to repentance breaks our hearts. But in Matthew 19, Jesus assures us, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. The author of Hebrews is not putting God in a box saying, yeah, God can't bring them back to repentance. No, with God, that is possible. God can change any heart and save anyone. But so long as they reject Jesus, we can lead them back to God by no other path. It is impossible. Because it is only through Christ. But God is greater than our rebellion. And it is His way, it is His habit to overcome the stubborn and the rebellious and to lead them to repentance despite themselves. And the war- but yet the warning remains. Cutting yourself off from the grace of God is dangerous. But there is another way that we reject God's grace. The author of Hebrews goes on to give a vivid illustration in verses 7 and 8. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if that land receives the rain and it in turn bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. The rain in this illustration is the word of God, the means by which God's grace is communicated to us. And I say that because Isaiah uses the same illustration in one of the most beautiful chapters in the Bible, Isaiah 55. He says, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but first water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that which I propose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Do you see what's happening? People can reject God's grace by not responding to it, by producing the obedience, the fruit that God desires. You can reject God's grace by giving it lip service and saying, oh yes, amen, I believe this but yet not in your life produce the fruit that God desires, which is obedience. This is the person who hears the word of God, who sings Christian songs, perhaps surrounds herself with Christian things, who hears and learns and and nods his head in the sermon, but their life is indistinguishable from people who serve themselves. The harsh language they use in speaking to people they don't like the way they behave, the way they invest their money, the way they invest their time is indistinguishable from people who live in fear of what other people think. Indistinguishable from people whose joy and whose hope is in the things that they can get in this life. People who live under the teaching of God's grace but become no less selfish, no less envious, no less bitter, no more gracious, no more patient than they were before they heard the gracious word of God. The rain falls on the ground 
and only thorns and thistles come up. To such a person, Scripture only has a warning. Hear the warning if you think the author of Hebrews is harsh. Hear this warning from the words of Jesus himself in Matthew 7. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. We can reject God's grace by turning away from Jesus, by shutting him out. But we can also reject it just as truly and just as catastrophically by not responding to that grace and living our lives according to it. In both cases, it is dangerous to reject God's grace. On the other hand, we see in these verses a picture of what it looks like to continue in God's grace and see that it is blessed. It is blessed to continue in God's grace. Because though many of us perhaps first trusted Christ out of fear, anyone else? I mean, I remember when I was seven years old, kneeling next to my Empire Strikes Back bedsheets. Seven years old, it was the 80s. We all had those. And, and I had heard in Sunday school, as my parents had just started going to church and had themselves just started to believe, I remember hearing, if you don't believe in Jesus, you will go to hell for eternity. And it just it registered one day when I was at home. And I, out of fear, gave my life to Christ, responded, prayed that God would forgive me and save me. Fear of hell, fear of what would happen if we faced God's judgment. Many of us came to Christ that way, but the call of salvation itself is not at its heart a call to flee judgment and punishment. It is instead a call to be blessed. That's what God is calling us to. The speaking of judgment and punishment and hell is, is, is done in love. To say, don't do that. Come instead and be blessed. It is a call to taste and see that the Lord is good. So more than just being warned about the danger of rejecting God's grace, we need to see here that it is blessed to continue in God's grace. So let's look again at the land and the rain in verse 7. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those for whose sake it is cultivated, that land receives a blessing. From God. We talked already about the danger of hearing the word of God and, and having his grace poured out on you and not bearing fruit, not living the way that his grace calls us to live. But just as confidently, just as confidently, we can speak of what it means to receive that grace, to hear God's word, and then live in the way that his word calls us to live. The author of Hebrews says that those who rightly respond to God's word receive a blessing from God. And he makes clear that this is, how, this is how he thinks of his audience, the people he's writing to. He's not writing to people saying, you horrible people, you're about to be cursed, you're about to be burned, turn away. No, that's, he says actually in verse 9, though we're speaking of these things, in your case, beloved, we're, we feel sure of better things. We know that's not you. We feel sure of better things, the things that belong to salvation. First, he's assuring them, look, I know you all. You who are reading this letter, you've shown better fruit than that. You are showing the kind of life that God has promised to bless. The kind of life that is a response to His grace. But let us be careful how we understand that. 
The promise of blessing is not a guarantee that if you obey God, everything is going to go the way you want it to. Hear that. I'm going to say it again. Also because the kids who are taking notes, this is one of your questions. The promise of blessing is not a guarantee that if you obey God, everything is going to go the way you want it to go. It's not a promise that bad things won't happen. Have you ever struggled with that? Thinking and wondering in your heart, God, I, I raised all my kids in the church according to your word. Why are they rejecting you? Why aren't things going the way? Why aren't I, why aren't I being blessed the way I want to be blessed? God, I serve you with my whole heart. Why am I struggling to pay the bills? God, I am being faithful to my convictions. Why is my job now in danger? I am obeying. I am like the land that receives the rain and produces fruit, and I'm not being blessed. You are not alone. If those are the confused prayers of your heart, God's people have always asked these questions. And it's really a question of why His blessings delay. And perhaps they've looked inwards and wondered if their circumstances might perhaps be a punishment for some sin they haven't dealt with. Oh, if, my, if my marriage is like this, maybe there's something that I haven't confessed yet that God's punishing me for. Maybe God is withholding blessing from me because of something I said or did that, that He's angry about. The readers of Hebrews may have felt like this. The original audience, they were being so persecuted for their faith, so oppressed for following Jesus. They were losing jobs. They were being cut off from family. Some of them were being thrown in prison. Some of them were being abused and, and receiving violence and even martyrdom. They were considering giving up because it seemed like God was not blessing their obedience and their faith, which made them consider, well, if God is not blessing us now, then maybe we're wrong. Maybe he's trying to send us a message. The author of Hebrews goes on to address this. After warning them of the dangers of not bearing fruit, he then goes on to assure them in verse 10, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. He's saying God knows. God knows where your heart is at and He sees what you're doing and He does not ignore it. He does not forget it. If the blessing delays, it's because it's not the right time for a God who knows all things and is working all things for the good of His children. The promise is not that you will be blessed immediately. We don't serve a vending machine God. You'll hear me say this a lot. I think we talked about it in our Men's Wednesday morning study a few weeks ago. Have you noticed that Scripture uses so much agricultural imagery? It's not just because it was an agricultural society. Even in Hebrews here, it's, it's agricultural imagery. When the rain falls on the land, it doesn't produce crops and receive blessings seconds later, does it? I mean, not in my yard or anywhere else I've been. It takes time. It takes time to produce the fruit and to receive the blessing. We live in a vending machine, microwave, McDonald's age where you walk up to the machine, you put in your obedience, you push the button, blessing drops out, amen, hallelujah. And if that's what we're expecting, we get no justification in Scripture for that. It takes time. And if the blessing delays, that doesn't mean it's not coming. 
So the author of Hebrews is speaking to a, an audience that he can, he can point to. He can list off the responses to God's grace that they have shown. And he commends them for their work and he promises them, God's not going to overlook it. God's not ignoring it. He's not that unjust. There will be blessing for your obedience in due season, in time. And then look at this. What is, what is this work that they show in verse 10? The love that you have shown for His name. And how do they show love for God? And for His name represents all that He is, all that He does, all that He represents. How do they show love for God and for His name? Is it by singing it loudly? Off key or on key, doesn't matter. You know, is it about praying God's name? Is that how we show love for God's name? No, the author of Hebrews says, the love you've shown for His name in serving the saints. How do we love God? How do we show love for God's name? By loving God's children. Do you recall what the greatest commandment is? What Jesus said was the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And the second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself is like the command to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It, scripture makes it clear it's impossible to be this person who loves God effusively, powerfully, passionately, and yet isolates yourself from God's people and does not move towards them in love and in service and in care and in blessing. Those, those two ideas are incompatible. It doesn't work. If you're not loving God's children, Scripture says you're not loving God. Jesus puts it this way in John 14. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's right. You obey God's word, and that's how you show you love him. A few verses later, a few sentences, a few breaths later, he says in John 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And he goes on to explain how he loves them. Greater love has no one than this. He laid down his life for his friends. How do we love God? By obeying his commands. What is his command? That we love one another as he has loved us. How has he loved us? By laying down his life for us. The fruit of a life that continues in God's grace and is assured of a blessing is loving concern for God's people. The fruit of a life that continues in God's grace is loving concern for God's people. We show love for God by showing love to God's children. If you walk up to me with a smile on your face and, and, and blessing in your words, and then a minute later I see you being harsh and rude to my children, I don't care if they deserved it. They, I do not receive the love that you have for me if you, if you show hatred towards my children. And God is no different. True devotion to God is best expressed in care for one another in His name. But does that save us? Does God forgive our sins because we're nice to other people? No, of course not. God only forgives because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus who takes our place. His salvation, His forgiveness is an act of grace. It's a gift. It's not something we earn or deserve by how good we are to one another. But those who have received the grace of God become gracious people. Those who have been forgiven in turn forgive. Those who have been loved unconditionally 
Love others without condition. So in this way, the life of obedience does not earn our salvation, but it confirms it. It gives us evidence that it's there. Many of you know that I was a music major. More specifically, I studied percussion for all five and a half years of my undergrad degree. And I had a classmate who was also a percussionist who was starting to have some, some wrist and arm difficulty and, and learned that, that she actually needed surgery on her arm and her wrist. And because uh, it, it got to the point where she couldn't even hold a drumstick anymore. She couldn't close her hand all the way. And uh, so she was scheduled to go in for surgery. And I, I recall her telling us this story later. She asked the doctor, well, you know, once everything stitched, is stitched up and heals up, how will I know if it worked? They said, you'll be playing the drums again. You'll be able to hold a drumstick and play the drums. If it works, if this surgery works, you will be playing the drums again. The point is, playing the drums is not what healed her arm. Playing the drums is what showed that her arm had been healed. And likewise, for God's people, our love of one another and our obedience to God is not what heals and saves us. It shows that we have been saved. It shows that it's already happened. It shows that God has given us a new heart already because if He had not given us this new heart, we would not be a people becoming more gracious to one another. We would not be quick to forgive. We would not be loving our enemies. A life of obedience does not earn God's love, but it can show that God's love is already in our hearts. Peter puts it this way in 2 Peter 1. He says, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will, ne you will never fall. It's a beautiful passage we're going to get to early in 2024 in preaching. So just, just so you know, we're planning ahead. Second Peter chapter 1, he begins by saying, we have everything we need based on the promises of God. Therefore, add to your faith. All these virtues, hard work, uh, kindness, uh, affection for one another, perseverance, patience, strength, all these great things. And then he says, if you, if you are adding these things, what you're doing is you're confirming your calling and election. You are demonstrating, showing proof, evidence, fruit that God has saved you. The obedience didn't earn that salvation. It shows what's already there. That is the hope. That is the assurance that the Bible gives us. How can we know that God has saved us? We know because He's promised that everyone who believes in Him through Jesus Christ will be forgiven, will be saved. But our hearts naturally waver and are weak and we doubt and we question and we get insecure and we say, but how can I know? What if I'm the exception? What if my faith isn't strong enough? What if I'm not good enough? The answer of Scripture is to look at your fruit. You who confess Christ, you who believe in Him, look at what your life is producing. If it is still producing the same degree of selfishness, bitterness, evil behavior, then be warned. Be warned and examine your heart. Have you truly received God's grace? Or is it lip service? But if you who call on Christ have a sincere desire to love God by loving your brothers and sisters, then the Apostle John says it this way in 1 John 3. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this, by this we know that we're in the truth 
and we reassure our hearts before God. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. If your heart is condemning you, is challenging you, is saying you're not good enough, you're not mature enough, you don't love God enough. The apostle says, no, when, when we, out of love for God, seek to love our brothers and sisters, this is how we set our hearts at rest in the presence of God. That's what the author of Hebrews is using to encourage his readers as we wrap up these verses. And verse 11, as we desire each one of you to show that same earnestness, that same hard work, and to have full assurance of hope until the end. That's his goal, not to scare people, not to make them question and wonder, oh, maybe, maybe I'm not saved. No, he's saying we want you to have full assurance. We want you to have full assurance, and to do that, you need to show the same earnestness. All of God's people continue in his grace by loving God, by loving one another. Don't give up on your obedience that God has promised to justly reward. Because this assures you of your place in the covenant of God. Everyone who believes in Jesus will be saved. And everyone who is saved by Jesus has a new, changed heart. A heart that desires to love God's people. Therefore, we have this assurance, this confidence in verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish. I don't like slugs. But I can outrun one. Okay? Don't be sluggish, but instead be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Being confident of God's forgiveness and being confident of His love and salvation in your life does not make you lazy. It doesn't make you say, okay, well now I don't need to do anything. It's easy street from here on out to eternity. No, instead, it makes us diligent. It makes us hardworking because we know that what God calls us to do, we're assured now that it's not a waste of time. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So now that we have victory, look what happens. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, be always abounding in the work of the Lord. Work hard because now you know, because of the grace of God, you are assured and you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. God will reward. He is not so unjust as to overlook your work and your kindness towards God's people. It's not in vain. That's the fruit of the assurance of grace. Now, to some of you, it may sound like we're pulling a fast one here. We talk about grace, but we're saying you have to show obedience and good works, which means grace isn't really grace, is it? Which would be right if we were talking about a grace that follows and depends on how well we obey. But the gospel runs deeper than that, much, much deeper. Jesus tells his followers in John 15, I'm going to close with this, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I abide in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If Jesus is not at work in us, if his gracious love didn't first move in our hearts, we would be able to do nothing to please him. No amount of good works no amount of love for other people would be present if he was not at work in our hearts. The activity of obedience, the good works, 
loving others, it's the evidence and the result of a love that came before. A love that started when we were still rejecting Him. So as we get ready to sing one more song to help us welcome in the new year and to examine our current path and to be moved towards that which we want to carry through the year, the path we want to stay on, we're going to sing a prayer to the Holy Spirit without whom we can do nothing. And as we abide in Christ, as we follow closely in His steps, we see that His Spirit will cause God's Word to come alive in us, turn our strivings into works of grace, and lead us in this path of blessing that God graciously pours out on His children as we continue in His grace. Brothers and sisters, you are not living a life, and do not make this coming year a life of trying to chase the grace of God and hope that you catch it. The grace of God is your starting point that sends you forward. And from that, you live a life that He blesses and you are assured and your labor is not in vain. I'm going to ask the musicians to come forward and help me here as we prepare to sing. Holy Spirit, living breath of God, please stand with me as I pray. And as our children join us. Let them hear us pray for God's Holy Spirit to equip and empower and enable us to live lives pleasing to the Lord. Heavenly Father, by the power of your Spirit that you have given to all your children, may we bear the fruit of true salvation. May your word, which is like the rain that falls on the land, may it water us and produce in us that which you intend, the purpose you have for us. And as we see that fruit, as we see our hearts change towards one another, may we be blessed and assured that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We receive these blessings by faith because they are given by grace. We pray these things in the name of our gracious Savior. Amen.